0: Amen. Will please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. You can find it on page 870 of your pew Bible. We will be looking in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 36. We'll hear now the reading of God's Holy Word. When the crowds were increasing, He, that is Jesus, began to say, This generation is an evil generation that seeks for a sign. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, Having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we have just sung and confessed with our mouths that we want to be those who stand on the promises of God on the living and eternal Word of God. And so we ask this morning, might you speak and write it upon our hearts. And all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's probably in the mid-90s. If you've been looking in your bulletin, perhaps you wondered where that title came from, but Maybe you can recall the mid 90s. There was a, a tour. It was known as the Blue Comedy Tour. You remember him? Ron White, Jeff Foxworthy, Larry the Cable Guy, and Bill Ingvall. They were comedians and some more funny than others, some more appropriate than others. But, but Bill Ingvall, he, he had a bit of a, a routine. And he describes it. He talks about his frustration and surprise by what shall we say, less intelligent people. And what he said was, I just wish they had a sign that let us know. Because if we were going to ask them a question, we could say something like, Excuse me, oh, there's your sign. I won't, I won't ask you. You're not prepared for it. Maybe you remember something of it. You remember his example? He had several. He was moving from Texas to California. There's a U-Haul in the driveway. A neighbor walks by and says, are you moving? And he says, nope. We just pack our stuff up once or twice a week to see how many boxes it takes. And here's your sign. Now, that is the title of the sermon. I'm not suggesting that Jesus has the same outlook on people that Bill Ingvall does. But there is an issue of sign here, isn't it? People are asking for a sign. We want a sign. If we had a sign, as the people are saying, we might believe, or we might believe more. And that language of sign, it's not new. And yet it is important, because signs are important. If you come this evening, you'll see another sign. It's called the Lord's Supper. We have two call them sacraments, that of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and what do we understand about those sacraments? They're signs and seals. Signs, what do they do? They, they point to something other than themselves. Signs are never meant to draw your attention to it, but to point you away from it to a particular place, something beyond it. And that is what is taking place in our text this morning. It's a demand for signs. And what is Jesus saying He's saying signs aren't the problem, but your sight is. And those are our two points, that of sign, and then lastly of sight. Looking at sign, you can see where Jesus engages with the people in 29 to 32 about this issue of signs. We haven't heard from the people in a few verses they were last noted in Luke 11 in verses 15 and 16 and, and that's where they are demanding a sign. They're accusing Jesus of being a, of one of satanic power as he has driven out a demon. Demons being driven out as they would say by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's the last verbal word that we have received from this crowd minus the one interruption from that courageous woman who had said, blessed be you, or the woman who bore you. And you remember Jesus adding to it, yes, but there's, there's a greater blessing for those who would hear the word of God and obey it. And so these people are demanding a sign and we get Jesus saying, as it's already been noted, that he knew their thoughts. And he says in verse 29, you are an evil generation. What is Jesus saying here? As the crowds are increasing and they want a sign and Jesus would look at him, all of them, and say that you are evil. Certainly, we might add that every generation has a a form of evil, that of sin. Since the garden, we've all been plagued with it. But I think Jesus is actually saying something a little bit more here. He is calling out a particular generation and he is saying you are demanding a sign and yet a sign is before you and you have rejected it. The son of God is in human flesh and here you are asking for more. And Jesus is saying there's a a measure of evil that you have unlike other generations. Now he's not calling them evil because they're asking for a sign. No, the the history of Israel would even show that God has been merciful and gracious to provide signs, some to demonstrate His faithfulness, even others to encourage those who are weak. You can think of Judges chapter 6 with Gideon and the fleece, his weak faith, and here God is providing a sign to say, I am with you and I've promised this. So, Israel is well acquainted with having signs from God. It's not that Jesus is calling them evil because they've asked for a sign, it's their motive behind it. That you have not done enough for us. We want something more. It's a bit of a head scratcher because you you can go through the Gospels, even to where we are, and what has taken place. They're asking for a sign, and yet what has happened? Has Jesus not turned water into wine? Has He not walked on the water? Has He not fed the 5,000? Has He not fed the 4,000? Has He not healed lepers? And even in context, has He not cast out a demon? And yet they're saying, you know, that's not sufficient. We want something a bit more. You need to do more for us. We want a sign. You know, it's a bit interesting. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's actually going to address something similar. He's talking about the folly of the cross. And do you know what he says? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says Jews demand a sign and Greeks demand wisdom. It's interesting that both of those are present here in our passage. The issue of a sign and that of wisdom. And so Jesus speaks to them and he, and he speaks a bit of a, a mosaic type manner. What do I mean by that? You remember Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, he's saying that when a charge is being brought It's going to have to be brought by two to three witnesses. You need a multiplicity of witnesses to provide evidence. Now, God doesn't have to do that. He has provided enough evidence, even in the life of Christ. And yet, Jesus calls two witnesses before the people. And don't you find it interesting what kind of witnesses he calls before them? What does he say? Jonah He's one of my witnesses. And even the people of Nineveh and then the queen of the south. And he says, you need to consider Jonah. And not just Jonah, but but Nineveh. You can see it in verse 32. The men of Nineveh will, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. You remember that story, don't you? That of Jonah? God had called Jonah to leave and to go to Nineveh to to preach the gospel. And, well, he got on a boat, not towards Nineveh, but Tarshish, the the almost exact opposite direction. Children, you remember this story, don't you? Jonah didn't enjoy his ride on the boat very long. There were storms, and you remember Jonah is, he's tossed overboard to spare the others, and he's swallowed up by a great fish and three days later he's spit up on the shore and he's he's spit up on the shore directed at Nineveh and what is he to go do he's he's to go preach he's to go to this city full of pagans wicked pagans as we learn and do you remember his sermon to them oh my fellow Ninevites how God so loves you is that Jonah's sermon No, quite the contrary. What does Jonah preach to the Ninevites? You have 40 days to repent, or you will be destroyed. God will judge you for your sin. Therefore, repent and trust Him, or He will judge you. And you remember the story, right? They repent. Now, why is Jesus using this story? Why is Nineveh going to be those who judge the nation of Israel? Why is Nineveh going to be the people who judge the people of God? Jesus saying is, what he's trying to teach them is what Nineveh had, it's different. It's different than even you this day. What is he saying? The difference is that Nineveh repents. And they believe. And what Jesus is saying, you have a sign and you've had many and you will not repent. It's not the only difference, but it's the one of emphasis. You recognize what took place with Jonah to Nineveh. He's talking to a people who don't have a Bible. And Jesus is talking to people who have several Hebrew Bibles. They know the Torah. They've sung the Psalms. They've prayed, they have a synagogue, they they worship, they have priests, they have scribes, they have prophets. They have every opportunity to hear and to see who God is. And yet it's Nineveh who doesn't have any of those things. And they hear, you have 40 days to repent or you will be judged. And so they repent. And yet Israel who has the Sabbath day to remind them of who their God is and what he is like, that he is standing in human flesh before them and yet they will not repent. They will not believe. Jonah, who's only preached judgment and Jesus, who's preaching something similar and yet something drastically different and that people will not respond. And so he says, you are an evil generation. You know, something similar might be said to us, isn't it? It's very possible many of you could say something like, I've grown up in the church all my life. I've never not known a day in which that was a part of our family routine. You've been involved in Bible studies. You went to a Christian college or or you grew up in a Christian grade school. You might say you have an interest in theology or you know theology. Please do volunteer at VBS, but you might say, I've volunteered at VBS. You might even say, I've taught VBS. You're aware, no doubt, of those statistics of high school students that leave and go off to college and seemingly lose their faith. And yet you, you hear of the work of God on college campuses, don't you? That people who've never heard of Christ, never had any exposure to the gospel, they find themselves on a campus and, and they come to Christ. How is that possible? How do these people who have no exposure come to know Christ? It's because I think they become painfully aware of their sin. They've been trying and trying and trying to find life and haven't found it. They know that they need some help or dare we say, a Savior. But that's not just a collegiate statistic. That happens in adult life as well. You could say, I've been going to a church, even this church, for 50 years, and yet your heart is cold. It lacks the vitality and the joy of knowing who God is and what it means to worship Him. One of you told me this story, I think it's probably roughly three years ago. I'm never going to forget it. It was a simple story. You had just started coming, and you said, this is the first church, as I remember the story that you have been in, that has a sermon lasting longer than 10 minutes and is still using the Bible. I I remember consciously being awestruck at that, that's a, that's a shock. How surprising. And yet I think the longer I think on it, I'm beginning to think, no, that's probably far more regular that that happens. Or there might even be people here even this day who would say, yeah, I'm tired of the sermon that lasts longer than 10 minutes. I want to go do something other than church And I think what Jesus is saying is, you and I can become very good at putting on a show outside and not dealing with what's going on inside. And Jesus is saying Christianity has always and will always be a matter of the heart. He's saying, don't play games with God as though you're going to fool Him. Just because you can have an agenda full of spiritual things doesn't mean that's what's going on in your heart. And he's saying, your heart matters. How you understand the gospel, it it matters because salvation is not based on how much you know, but with what you know, how deep does it go? Some of you might say, I know a whole lot, but I'm interested in the one who says, I know a few things and I know them very well. And they produce a life change. You might only know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And you could pray a profound prayer. Jesus, forgive me. For I am a sinner. And how much more profound that might be than the one who could throw up lofty theological terms for minutes. How much more I would say you know of the gospel than the one who perhaps has vocabulary that you do not. Jesus is saying the people of Nineveh, they will rise up to judge you because they had Jonah and you have Jesus and you will not repent. Did you see what he said at the end of verse 32? Something greater than Jonah is here. You know, that's a, it's quite a profound thing that Jesus is saying to them. You recognize that, yes, He is the Son of God. Of, of course He is greater than Jonah. Jesus is the, the final prophet, as Hebrews would say. But it's not just that He's a greater prophet than Jonah. He has a greater message than Jonah. You remember the message. You've got 40 days to repent or you will be judged. And what is Jesus doing? As John tells us, he's full of grace and truth. And what is he preaching to the people? Come to me and you will have rest. You will have a pardon for your iniquity. Your sins might be forgiven. You can have a newness of life. This is the message that Jesus is preaching, not the judgment that Jonah was preaching. Moreover than that, Jesus' message is greater attested to than Jonah. Jonah. Jonah dropped into Nineveh and said, you got 40 days, and that was it. And yet, as we've already noted, Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle after miracle, saying to them, I am he, I am the son of God. And then lastly, do you remember how Jonah responds versus how Jesus responds? When Jonah was Obedient to preach. This is what you read when the people repented in Nineveh. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord, is not this what I said "'when I was yet in my country? "'That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. "'For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, "'slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love.' and relenting from disaster. That's Jonah's reaction to their repentance. And what is Jesus's? He looks on the crowds and sees them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He's the one who will look and weep over Jerusalem, that they might come and find life. And so Jesus says, there's a witness against you It's the men of Nineveh. And then he talks about the the queen of the south, or if you know your Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba. She hears of Solomon. Specifically, she hears about his wealth and his wisdom, and, and she wants to see it for herself. And so she travels far. She brings many gifts to come and meet and see Solomon. And Jesus is saying, and it would have gotten everyone's attention. The Ninevites have, they're the first witness. They're Gentiles. And then here's a Gentile woman. She too will stand up to judge you. Why? Because as far as we can tell, she has no Bible. As far as we can tell, she had no church. As far as we can tell, she had no opportunity up until 1 Kings chapter 10, to hear the truth of God unfolded. And yet, just at the sound of it, she travels far to meet Solomon. And Jesus is saying, and someone far greater than Solomon is here. And you reject me. It's this comparison, I think, that Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. And even with Israel. There are scribes here. There are religious leaders here. There's crowds. They've all gotten to hear the word of God. They've gotten to see the word of God in human flesh. The queen of the south didn't get any of those things. And yet she traveled far. And God in flesh is standing before them. They didn't have to travel at all. But what great lengths it took God to travel to them, to tell them of who He is and what He is like and how you might have life. It's that profound truth that Paul, we referenced it even in Sunday school this morning, tells the church at Colossae, that the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge the Jews seeking signs, the Greeks seeking wisdom, and Jesus is saying, I am he, and I am before you. There is no wisdom outside of me, and yet you you have done nothing with me. I've offered myself to you. I've given to you truth, and you don't want it. You've rejected it, and you will not repent. Repent. What does that look like for us today? I think something simple. When you hear truth, does it resonate in your heart? When the truth is opened before you, does does something in your heart begin to stir and say, Yes, I want more? Help me understand. Help me how to know and how to live. That's the question I think Jesus is putting before them. Truth is here. And you want none of it. It's the question for you and me this day. Here's the truth. There's something stirring in your heart that says, I want more. Because it's the truth that's going to say what? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And we need a Savior. And only in God's truth are we made, as Paul tells Timothy, wise unto salvation. And so Jesus is saying there's no sign other than the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given. It's been revealed and you have said no to it. And I think Jesus uses that second illustration to kind of bookend what he's been saying the whole time. He's saying a sign has been given. It's been revealed. And it's as though he's asking the question, but do you see it? Do you have sight? Do you see? And so he uses this illustration of, of eyes and of, of light. And he's saying in the gospel, sight is significant. It's important. You and I must be able to see. Do you, do you see Jesus? Do you understand him? Do you know the gospel? Do you look for the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? He's saying you need to see and so he uses this simple yet foundational illustration, doesn't he? He says what no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket. Jesus knows very well who he's talking to. They don't they don't have lights streaming down from the ceiling. They don't have foyer lights, they don't have bedroom lights, bathroom lights, They don't have these can lights. They don't have lights for decoration. What do they have? It's necessity. If they didn't have light, they couldn't see. It would be utterly dark. And so Jesus is saying, who lights a lamp and puts it under a basket? Who who lights that candle and then puts the basket on top of it? Or I think he's talking perhaps to Greeks at time, and he's saying, maybe you have a basement. Who turns on... A light and welcomes their guests and then immediately puts it in the basement. It's an obvious point, he's saying. Nobody would do that because if you took the light out, you're in utter darkness. You could not see. Now, Jesus is not using light as he does in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not looking at the people and saying, You're the light of the world. He's not even talking about, is there light in you? He's talking about a direct reference to himself. I am the light. If you see me, you see life. But if you don't, you're in utter darkness. He's not merely talking physically, you see. He's talking spiritually. It's why Paul is going to pick up on that kind of analogy in Ephesians chapter 1. He's praying for them. And what does he say? I'm praying that the eyes of your heart might see, that you might know. And so Jesus is saying, if you take me and you cover me, you're not getting light or life. It's darkness. Jesus is saying, "I, I am the light. I am the Savior. I show sin. I show truth. I give salvation. I give life. I show the gospel. And so the problem is not so much with light, but it is our sight. And that's what he's saying to them. You remember just a couple months ago, we, we hear it pretty regularly in the month of December in Advent. What does Isaiah say? Remember that prophecy? Those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. What is he saying? What is Jesus saying? Friends, Jesus is not hiding. He's not hiding from you. He's not hiding from anyone. He he has clearly exposed himself. He is available. He has revealed himself. He is able to be seen, to be heard, and yet their eyes are too dim to see. That which God has given for them to gather light and understanding They have unbelief and do not see. I wonder this morning, do you see Jesus? Do you see him for who he is? I think he's trying to wrap up his argument. They demanded a sign. Signs have been revealed, but they seemingly don't see. And I think Jesus is trying to say two things to them. The first is look at verse 30 what he says about Jonah. Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. I think that language is important. What does it mean that Jonah became a sign? Is the sign that Jonah became is it is it that of his preaching? And he's preaching to people and he's saying you need to repent? Jesus is preaching something very similar. I think it's part of the sign. I don't think it's the fullness of the sign. Because look at what he says. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. Who's the sign? Jonah is. And what happened to Jonah? We've already talked about it. He was thrown overboard. And he was swallowed up by the fish. I promise you, no other person on the boat thought, well, we'll see him in a few days on shore. Hopefully he's Okay. They all had the same thought. He's gone. And he's dead. And that's it. How miraculous it would have been on the third day that he lives. And he lives to preach repentance. You know someone like that too, don't you? Someone who all thought was dead, who died. And yet he lives. Is that not Paul's point in First Corinthians chapter 15? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus is saying, I am that sign and no other sign will be given. Do you see me that nothing in this life will give to you or to me any kind of substance or security or sustenance or even satisfaction like Jesus? And I think The second thing he's teaching is it's not just that I am secure, that I am salvation, that I am life. Don't you love the description he uses in verse 36? Look at what he says. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Do you see what he's saying? That if Jesus turns on the light, it is all on. There is no part grace in Jesus. There is no part salvation. There is no part mercy. He gives whole life. You are fully alive or you're in darkness. And so He is providing holy, bright, full of light, no part dark. And He's saying, But do you see me? It's not a light problem. It's a sight problem. And Jesus is saying the light is here. And it's all around. I did a, a little research, not much. The most recent one I could find was 2021. And it was doing some kind of survey throughout the United States. And this is what the survey said. That between 85, depending on what survey you looked at, between 85 and 87% of U.S. homes own a Bible and the average home owns somewhere between 4.3 and 4.5 Bibles. Do do you see what Jesus is saying? It's not a light problem. Light is all over the place. But do you see him? I think he's asking and, and punctuating that which we confessed earlier. Do you believe and the one who has been lifted up for eternal life. Do you remember our confession of faith? What what does he say in John chapter three? We speak of what we know and bear witness to that, to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so he's saying, as the son of man is lifted up, whoever believes in him, has eternal life. Luke chapter 11 is simple in its statement. It's all about how you hear and receive the word of God. That's why that woman was so courageous. And that's why Jesus was saying there's a benediction, there's a blessing for people who don't just hear it, but who keep it. And Jesus is saying read your Bible. Come to church. Pray with others. Let the word of God find its way into your heart for it will make your life full of light and you will have life if you would but believe. And so a simple application, it matters not who you are this morning. Come and see Jesus, whether that's growing in Jesus Or being saved by him, we all need to come and see Jesus. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank you that in our sin and in our rebelliousness, you have not left us alone. You have given to us your word. We confess it regularly. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word, O Lord, will stand forever. And it's your word that teaches us who Jesus is. It's your word that shows us truth and sin and a savior and the gospel and what it means to believe and to have life. And so might we this day, O Lord, come and see Jesus our Savior, where our sin is forgiven, that we might have life, and as He has promised, life to the full. So help us to receive Your Word, to believe it, to abide in it, and therefore live in light of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.